we are witnessing a fundamental shift in the political alliances of the two major parties, uh, particularly in the largest, most powerful party, which of course is the Democratic Party here in the state. And that tectonic, those tectonic plates have always been held together in the Democratic Party between what I call the wine and cheese Democrats, mm -hmm. right? Essentially the higher household income, uh, tend to be higher educated, uh, tend to live in the suburbs and the coasts, tend to have interests more aligned with uh, on issues of the environment uh, and what might be called um, issues in social justice, uh, tend to have their kids in private schools. Mm -hmm. The other side of the party, as I see it, I describe as the beer and pretzel Democrats. These are the ones that uh, tend to be uh, lower to lower middle class, tend to be much more ethnically diverse, tend to uh, require a better performance of public institutions, whether they be public schools or public safety. Um, the wine and cheese Democrats have essentially gotten the upper hand on many of the policy issues, or they have benefited from many of the policy issues that you've just laid out. So whether we're talking about the high cost of housing, mm -hmm. they tend to be homeowners and are perfectly fine with their household um, values growing. When it comes to education, they tend to not be as deeply invested in that because their kids tend to go to uh, private schools. When it comes to issues of crime and criminal justice, they tend to live in areas that are safer. The interests that had generally uh, kept together the Democratic Party in the state, I've, I've sensed a widening gap. And so This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Very pleased to be joined today by Pete Peterson. He is the Dean at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Thank you so much for uh, being with me. Great to be with you, Ashton. I appreciate it. So I want, I want to have you on the show. I want to discuss what the hell has happened to California. You obviously spend a lot of time evaluating public policy. Um, you're, you're in California. You you have a emphasis on that. So California, obviously the biggest state in the union. The current president, when he's, you know, lucid, calls California a model of the country. Um, and, you know, to be fair, the policies that start off in California usually work their way throughout the rest of the country. Uh, so it's always on the sort of cutting edge of societal and political trends. So it could be a great model for the nation or, uh, you know, in some cases, a warning sign. I think any sensible person right now would probably say it's more the latter. Um, so let's just run through some facts because I was looking looking at some of this up myself in preparation, and I was even surprised by some of this. So 53% of people in California are considering leaving. That includes 63% of millennials. That part I found very surprising. Um, mm -hmm. Five million people have left California in the last decade. Uh, the migration actually caused us to lose a congressional seat for the first time ever. California has the highest poverty rate in the country, one in five living in poverty. It's 30% uh, higher than a place like Texas, which is kind of the polar opposite of California. You know, despite being a sort of this progressive uh, bastion that claims to represent the interests of the poor and the working class, 
Uh, it ranks number 49 on the Gini coefficient in terms of income inequality. It has 12% of the country's population, 49% of the homeless live here. I, I found that astronomical. And that, by the way, that, that deviates from the rest of the country as well because the rest of the country had a decrease in the homeless population over the last 10 years. Uh, education, California students rank 45th in math and science. 70% aren't proficient in math. San Francisco, this one sort of made the news lately, uh, prohibiting gifted students from being able to take Algebra 1, apparently, uh, in middle school, which is uh, you know, dumbing down expectations further. Then, you, of course, you look at housing uh, as well, which is a, a significant issue. Housing is the most expensive in this state uh, relative to any other state in the country. Looking at 700000 median home price, 1.6 million San Francisco, over a million in L.A., San Francisco is more violent now than Compton, which I was shocked to hear. Um, and LA has like, I think, 70% increase in homicide the last couple of years. Uh, and we, we, we could go on and on with, with some <laughs> negative consequences. What, what the hell happened in California? And what do you see as sort of the biggest issues affecting this state? Um, maybe some ones I mentioned, maybe some ones I didn't. Maybe you can sort of you know delineate uh, one by one, uh, whatever you're comfortable with, mm. and, and sort of like get to what what is causing these issues, what's causing our biggest problems, and how, how, how do we even begin to think about how to change them? Well, first off, I think it's worth saying, as someone who did not grow up in California, uh, but came out here about 15 or 16 years ago, that when it comes to the analysis of public policy in the state, you have to start with at least one premise. It is very complex here. Uh, and I say that through a couple different lenses. One is that we um, have a variety of different policy-making bodies. Every one of those policy issues that you rightly uh, brought up and more that we can add in this conversation are governed, if you will, or regulated by a number of different agencies, whether it's uh, California Air Resources Board, CARB, and, and environmental regulation, whether it's local cities and municipalities that are making regulations about housing and where housing can be built and how much housing can be built, whether it's uh, some of these other um, types of uh, policies that we're seeing put into place by certain district attorneys at the city level as it relates to crime and, and certainly the uptick uh, that we've seen over these last couple of years. And then, of course, we have uh, the state and the policies that are brought forth. And then along with that, we have our famed initiative and referendum system, mm -hmm. which uh, is intended to give uh, the broader public, Californians, a check and balance on the legislature. So in everything that we'll be discussing in this conversation, I think it's worth for those that are outside of the state and even for those inside the state to realize how many moving parts there are, how complex the policymaking apparatus is here for the state. Now, a second lens that I think is a very important um, to, to consider when it comes to analyzing California public policy is the political one. And my read on state politics over the last several years is that we are witnessing a fundamental shift in the political alliances of the two major parties, uh, particularly in the largest, most powerful party, which, of course, is the Democratic Party here in the state. And that tectonic, those tectonic plates have always been held together in the Democratic Party between what I call the 
wine and cheese Democrats, mm -hmm. right? Essentially, the higher household income uh, tend to be higher educated, uh, tend to live in the suburbs and the coasts, tend to have interests more aligned with uh, on issues of the environment uh, and what might be called um, issues in social justice, uh, tend to have their kids in private schools. Mm -hmm. The other side of the party, as I see it, I describe as the beer and pretzel Democrats. These are the ones that uh, tend to be uh, lower to lower middle class, tend to be much more ethnically diverse, tend to uh, require a better performance of public institutions, whether they be public schools or public safety, uh, tend to be more focused on jobs that may be in the private sector union field as opposed to the public sector union field. Um, and in that, the history of the California Democratic Party and its power has come from the, at times, uneasy um, collaborating or partnering between these two parts of the party. What I've been witnessing over the last few years has been a growing fracturing of mm -hmm. that. And in so doing, um, the wine and cheese Democrats have essentially gotten the upper hand on many of the policy issues or they have benefited from many of the policy issues that you've just laid out. So whether we're talking about the high cost of housing, mm -hmm. they tend to be homeowners and are perfectly fine with their household um, values growing. When it comes to education, they tend to not be as deeply invested in that because their kids tend to go to uh, private schools. When it comes to issues of crime and criminal justice, they tend to live in areas that are safer or in environments that might be the proverbial gated community. And mm -hmm. so the interests that had generally uh, kept together the Democratic Party in the state, I've, I've sensed a widening gap. And so as we begin to talk through some of these particular issues, I think these two lenses through which we can understand and look at California politics and policy, one, the complexity of our policymaking apparatus, and two, the significant changes that are going on within the predominant political party, uh, we're going to see refracted uh, through each one of these issues we discussed. What do you think is the biggest uh, sort of fault line right now in this um, sort of di diversion between the sort of the wine and cheese or, you know, classically called the limousine liberals and, you know, the, uh, the traditional working class kinds of uh, Democrats? Is it the, um, I, I would suspect, maybe the defund the police kind of movement, right? These people are co completely isolated from the consequences of high crime. And so, you know, they can virtue signal and, and pat themselves on the back when they talk about police brutality and all that and not have to worry that the police will show up uh, to their own neighborhoods, which, you know, largely entrenched and uh, have security guards and if they live in a gated community. Um, would it be, I'm instantly reminded, so you, you work at a, a, a university. When I was in college, I remember having this discussion with someone about uh it was actually a girl I was dating and she <laughs> she's she said she didn't like believe in, in monogamy and i've actually heard this kind of this sentiment echoed a few times and then when you ask them personally like what do you uh, want for yourself They're like oh you know you know i want to get married and have kids and you know have the honeymoon in the mediterranean and uh you, you know have the nice big wedding right yeah. but but for, for for everyone else you know for for the, the lower classes yeah nog is outdated just 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 for me it's it's uh it's necessary right so you kind of have this like like a cognitive dissonance um they want to still 
get sort of the, the, the benefits of, of certain aspects of society, but are okay with denying them to other groups, so long as it makes them look somehow more virtuous. Like, what are those, are there any other fault lines you kind of see in that division? So you raised a very good, uh, a couple important data points at the beginning, Ashton, which was the uh, migration patterns of Californians. And I think that is a place that we can at least start to understand some of the real important issues uh, because people are voting with their feet here in California uh, that we can do as uh, free, uh, mm -hmm. liberty-loving Americans. If we don't like something, we can leave it. And there was a really interesting study done by the Legislative Analyst Office, the LAO, which is the nonpartisan, essentially policy research arm of the state legislature, looking at, the, at who migrated in and out of California between 2007 and 2017, so essentially a 10-year window. And when they analyzed who was coming and leaving, to your point, first, more people were leaving than coming. So, you know, let's at least start with that. But then when we explore who was leaving, um, some fascinating things come out of that. Number one, the, if you, the younger the age demographic, the more likely you were to be leaving. So your point about the millennials leaving and then Gen Z certainly was part of it. The number one household, in, the number one household uh, or age demographic leaving the state was actually Californians under the age of 18. Now, that didn't dictate that we had a runaway problem. Um, mm -hmm. These were kids in families that because right. they were multiple kids under the age of 18, it was the families who were leaving the state. Um, when we look at household income, the closer, the further down the household income scale that you went, the more likely it was that you were going to leave the state. But here's the thing that was, I think, has to be alarming, especially for those who value the great diversity of the state of California. When we looked at the demographics of the people leaving, it tended to be people who were uh, those who were ethnically diverse, our brown and black Californians, mm -hmm. tend to be the ones who were leaving, while older whites were coming into the state. Again, looking at this 10-year window, and I don't think there's any reason to doubt that those trend lines have continued. And so essentially, California, is, California has always seen itself as a diverse, middle-class friendly, family-friendly um, paradise. But when you look at the actual data, Every, all, all of those data points conflict with that vision that I think many Californians have. And so the question is really going to come to California voters. Um, do we deal with the reality of what California has become, which is essentially a, um, and again, these were the good data points that you pulled out, ones in which there is uh, significant and growing income inequality, one in which we have such high poverty rates one in which people who are the young, our future as a state, uh, are leaving the state. And, and certainly families are finding it more and more difficult uh, to live here because of the cost of living. Um, do we come to that realization and then do we take the next step uh, to begin to uh, respond to overturn change? Uh, the very real public policies that have created an environment that is causing people to leave the state. Yeah, it's just so, it's just so interesting, right? Because the the very people who incessantly lecture about diversity and uh, income inequality are enacting policies which lead to the erosion of diversity and exacerbating income inequality, right? And the 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 states that they demonize, are, <laughs> like Texas or Florida or uh, you know, used to be Arizona, though not so much anymore, 
because that's more of a purple state now. But you know, they they are kind of the the states that many of these diverse people and people who are in the working class, lower middle class, are moving to. So it's just it's just it's hilarious. I mean, it's sad, but it's it's so interesting. Obviously, it must be economics being one of the main drivers. Would you say it's it's housing as as the number one economic issue, or would you say it's um, wages or something of that nature? Yeah, I think the two are really intertwined. Um, I think first and foremost, and this again goes back to this LAO study when they were asking questions about what were some of the reasons. Um, cost of housing was a significant driver in the broader topic of cost of living here mm-hmm. in the okay. state versus other states. Right. Um, but there are others. Uh, and we you mentioned before energy. Energy costs from the cost of a gallon of gasoline to what it costs to... Uh, cool or heat our homes is just so much significantly higher here than even neighboring states. Uh, these are issues as well. But I, I would also put in there too, um, the political scientist Walter Russell Mead had this uh, phrase he used to describe um, essentially democratically run states and Republican run states. And he called it the red state model and the blue state model. The red state model was essentially you're going to get lower taxes, but you're not going to get the quality of services mm-hmm. uh, that you would otherwise. And that's the trade off that you're going to make as somebody living in that state. The blue state model was you're going to pay a lot in taxes, but you're going to get great roads and great schools and all great police departments and all the public services that you should expect. Well, we are at the um, inverse of the blue state mm-hmm. model. We are in a place where we are paying extremely high taxes and fees, both at the gas pump and you know on our income tax forms. Uh, but we are not nearly seeing the performance of government, whether it's in our local schools or our roads or uh, public safety, um, that one would expect. And again, I think that needs to be brought into this conversation around cost of living, which is this the broader regulatory state. Uh, and taxes, which again, continue to contribute to uh, the cost of living. And we don't see the payoff. It would be one thing if our schools were top 10, Mm. every street had just been paved over. Uh, We had crime rates dropping through the floor. Um, You know, the Democrats would have a a viable case to make, um, but we're just not seeing Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Worst of both worlds. (laughs) It's yeah, yeah, you're paying higher for worse services. Um, and yeah, I mean, they are, they are objectively worse by almost every metric. So let's, so with, all right, so let's start with, with housing for a second. The housing yep. is, is so expensive here. Why is it? Because obviously there's that the aspect of nimbyism, which the wine and cheese Democrats uh, play a big role in. Um, although not only them, but it's, it's, uh, you know, there's so many of them relative to the power players in, in California. Many of those fit that category. So they have a, uh, a interest, an economic interest in making sure that a lot of density doesn't get built in their neighborhood or whatever. Um, it's, it's what, what else is it? Is it sequa? Is it building costs? What? Yeah. I mean, in the end, this is a supply and demand problem, right? That we are not building the units necessary to maintain some sort of rational average cost of house. And that, again, as we go back to the first point I was making, um, is part of the complexity of policymaking. Much of these decisions are made in local governments. And so as much as that, we want to see this as predominantly a left-right issue, this is really about local governments making decisions that they don't want to grow. 
um, I was speaking at it to a group of uh, residents in Santa Monica. Um, so I was invited to speak at somebody's class at the community college there, but it was with, it was a continuing education class. And so we had generally people were in their 60s and 70s, longtime Santa Monica mm -hmm. residents. And I began the class by saying that Santa Monica is one of the most conservative cities in America. And if you know anything about Santa Monica, which is often dubbed the People's Republic of Santa right, Monica, right. Uh, that might not be your first appraisal. But when it comes to sticking a shovel in the ground, if you want to build a house or a multi-unit uh, dwelling, it is an extremely difficult thing to do uh, for reasons that are uh, determined by residents for the NIMBY issues that you um, describe. Now, the second part of this, and this is much more of a partisan issue, is uh, the restrictions and regulations we put on uh, what houses are built of and um, uh, essentially the, the process by which houses can be built. And in this, we get into the area of CEQA, we get into various uh, environmental regulations that are both at the state level and the local level. But you can only use certain kinds of light bulbs and certain kinds of wood finish and certain kinds of, uh, you know, uh, water reducing um, bathroom fixtures and so forth. If you want to build a house in a lot of places in California where the cost of actually building a house, uh, just the materials themselves are going to be much more expensive here um, because of um, the, the restrictions and regulations usually. Um, couched in in some sort of uh, environmental policy um, that make building a house here uh, so difficult. So part of it is in the dirt, and we make the dirt really expensive when we limit the dirt we can build on. And then the other part of it is <clears throat> what we can build with and the types of restrictions that we put on uh, having to use the most expensive uh, building material. And with this, this CEQA thing, the um, Environmental Quality Act, it basically, it basic, from my understanding, it basically allows um, almost anybody to initiate a lawsuit to hamper yep. development, and and they will sometimes do it under the auspices of of doing it for the environment. But it could be something like, oh, you're going to build something that might be detrimental to the uh, demand of my business, like LAX having um, expanding and having parking lots there, and there was like a. a somewhat close by parking lot, which then launched a sequel suit because that's going to drive away demand from their products. And so it just makes it really easy to be able to hamper any, any growth. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. And, and so again, you know, to your point, one of the things that makes the dirt so expensive is how long it takes to get permitted. Mm. And so above and beyond what a site costs uh, to be able to actually break ground requires permits and to get permits to build, especially in a state that has the California Environmental Quality Act and other regulations, the length at which builders, and this is especially true for multi-unit builders, they're building apartment buildings or multi-unit uh, condos, the amount of uh, essentially holding of cash and investments that builders need to do, understanding that it may take them years to go through the environmental quality uh, review um, uh, to uh, be able to begin building um, adds a whole new dimension to the cost of a piece of property even before they begin mm -hmm. building. And CEQA has been used, and there have been a number of discussions. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a CEQA reform measure that's proposed on the 2022 uh, set of ballot initiatives. Um, I think more and more people are becoming aware that this has been a tool used by many 
um, not only to prevent building, but ipso facto because of that, to drive up the cost of the housing that can be built. Uh, so I, I get why, you know, the uh, you know the, the political left would be in favor of some of these environmental regulations. I think CEQA, by the way, was um, under Reagan's administration, I believe, Reagan. right back when yeah, it was. Right. So he was he was a part of that, and you know, obviously circumstances were different back then. Uh, but it's you know yep. the environmental movement's usually a a feature of the left. Um, or at least that that version of the environmental movement, not so much the you know uh, filthy streets in L.A. and San Francisco and stuff with all the, uh, right. the feces and syringes and stuff. That that environment doesn't matter. The local environment doesn't matter. The uh, environment right. in in uh, sort of a- ambiguous terms matters. But then with now, I want to get your analysis on this. So I was reading this. Uh, there was a famous uh, article kind of making the rounds from the San Francisco Chronicle um, about this guy, and it's one of many examples, but this one always struck me. This guy, I think his name was like John Yu, he was trying to set up just an ice cream shop in San Francisco. Did you read this one? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah so – And there the, are a couple the, stories like this. Uh-huh, yeah, so yeah. The ice cream shop in San Francisco yeah. has become legend. Yeah. It's, it's Yeah, so for and the audience yeah, doesn't know I mean, this guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the cost of uh, just beginning a business. You know, I Andy Puzzer is a friend of mine. He's uh, spoken here uh, on campus many times. And uh, some of your viewers may know Andy is the former uh, chief executive officer of uh, Hardee's and Carl's Jr. restaurants. Mm-hmm. And he would often tell the story towards the end of his tenure when it became time to build restaurants the cost of building the exact same restaurant in California versus Texas, it just wasn't even close. Mm. And of course, implicit in that set of discussions that, that business leaders make is, what is it going to take to recoup those costs? Mm-hmm. And if it makes more sense to build a Hardee's in uh, Midland, Texas, than it does in uh, Culver City, well, you're that's a decision that you're going to make. And extrapolate that across a lot of different kinds of businesses. Um, Again, especially those that are serving those at the lower ends of the income spectrum. Um, And you see um, many of the problems that that California faces, especially for those it portends uh, to defend. Mm -hmm. And so just returning to that example for a second, I just wanted to, because I want to ask you a question about this. So he, it cost him about $200,000 to try to open up just an ice cream shop in a um, not so great area of town in San Francisco. And the reason why it costs so much is because all the permitting requirements, you had to go from this agency to that agency. There's even a rule in San Francisco about, well, um, a, somebody can challenge your, um, ability to, to sort of start a business. And in this case, it was like an ice cream, sh- a rival ice cream shop. Obviously they don't want the competition. Uh, so, right. so then he had to go through that whole process. Like where does, where does that sort of mindset come from? Cause that doesn't seem to me to be inherently like a, um, like a like a left wing thing to to require all these permits and make it just so onerous for little people to be able to just to start a small business like what how is that even developed like is it is it a new thing i mean is what's your take on that well i think it's a mixture right well first off you need those kinds of restrictions and regulations in order to enforce them right so you're right to say you know looking back at the history of sequa coming out of Reagan, you know, we think about many of the things that were going on in California in the 70s. My mm-hmm. wife is fourth generation Californian. She grew up out in uh, Claremont. She remembers the days that they had smog days where you didn't actually go outside, how bad it was here from an environmental standpoint. And 
because of a number of different measures and technology in the cat development of the catalytic converter. Um, California responded and has made a place that is very livable um, in, in all seasons. And uh, that particulate matter certainly is the ch isn't the challenge that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Something happened as we started to go uh, from some uh, responding to this one issue in smog to something else, which even friends of mine who are more on the left and even those who are interested in the environmental movement are saying is something that is much more radical, which um, in their eyes uh, seems in some ways to be not just uh, anti-growth, but in some ways almost anti-population, uh, mm -hmm. which is to say that um, in some parts of the environmental movement, it is morphed into a desire to actually reduce population here in California. So we should be aware that in some sectors, the fact that we lost a congressional seat, the fact that we saw a dip in the growth of population for the first time in California history was met by some as actually great news. Mm. And, and so I think that's, that's another part of this fracturing that I'm talking about, that uh, even in particular policy areas like the environmental movement, in fact, I just had um, a, great, a friend of mine, land use attorney and civil rights attorney um, named Jennifer Hernandez uh, come and speak here at the policy school just last week. And she calls it the green Jim Crow, mm -hmm. which is essentially the growth of, growth of environmental regulations to such an extent that the costs are being borne by our ethnically diverse populations, generally those in the lower ends of the income spectrum, uh, essentially forcing them to uh, leave or to move further and further out of uh, the major metropolitan areas. I think it's a really good point. So as a, as a background, this is sort of the, what they call the um... – as a Malthusian, Malthusian, yeah, Malthusian, yeah, Mal from from yeah. Uh, Malta. So that was very much the um, the sort of precursor and very influential on that environmentalist movement, which really took ground in like the seventies and eighties, and became and then it became sort of uh, once depopulation wasn't a. Um, I used to be kind of like the climate change of its era, not not to say climate change doesn't exist or anything, but that was kind of like the main environmental catastrophe that people would, would often uh, speak about. And it was a, a sort of anti-human mindset. It was pro-depopulation. It was uh, very concerned about the world overpopulating all that. turns out that's not going to be an issue because, you know, the, the world population is projected to go what, like 9 billion and then sort of work its way down. So it was kind of an anti-human environmentalism. That was, that was sort of the motivating yeah. factor. And then those people later yeah. – started to become more uh, interested in concepts of climate change. So that, that makes sense. So I think, I think there's something to that. That's still a strain of, of sort of their thinking. Very much. And they may not know who Malthus mm -hmm. is, but again, this approach that says that actually we have too many people living here in the state already. Um, it's not to say that that's not a perspective shared by many or at least some, but that definitely is, a, and mm -hmm. I think you're right to use the word strain, that, that remains a strain within the California environmental movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say you're a conservative running for, for office, um, trying to sort of win over the, the people who are most detrimentally affected by some of these issues that we discussed. Like what would be yeah. – now use that because we have a two-party system. It's like what, what would be the, the things that – you think have, are the highest priority that can be changed, that can lead to, you know, fairly immediate 
results for the better? How, how would you sort of rank that? So I was on a, I was on a webinar conversation a week or so ago. Um, look, and I was asked the question, what would be the one uncomfortable thing that you would say to people of your own party? And I was on there with Bill Galston. So he had to do, he, uh, guy at the Brookings Institution, mm. certainly a man on the left. And he said what I said. My, my thinking, my response to that was um, the Republican Party stands in California, stands on the precipice of a massive change in its composition, which is to say an opportunity to take or to attract a large segment of these beer and pretzel Democrats, right? That great Reagan line said that he never, he didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left him. Mm -hmm. I believe there are hundreds of thousands of California Democrats right now that given what's been going on in the state for the reasons that you've laid out there, some of these exacerbated by COVID, um, that uh, people are looking for an alternative. Now, in that, the Republican Party, uh, I think, needs to return to some of its roots as um, a party that's more, now, hear me out here, because I'm going to say something that's uncomfortable, but I, I, you have to, we have to ground this. No, please. <laughs> but that, that's more progressive in its nature, which is to say it is more about good government as opposed to no government. So there was a great line by uh, Grover Norquist, the, the tax fighter and somebody I like, and he's certainly been successful in many of the things that he's done around reducing taxes. But he said at one point he wanted to get government small enough that you could drown it in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very funny line. People understand it. It's never happened. Okay. Now, this, the thing that's almost worse than some, saying something politically that hasn't happened and is not necessarily going to happen is when it starts losing you votes, you really need to rethink it. And if I'm right about these tectonic plate shifting and the beer and pretzel Democrats being susceptible to attracting to an alternative, then Republicans really need to be about the party that wants the schools to work. Mm -hmm. So pushing on education reform and accountability for teachers and those kinds of issues needs to be a part of that platform pushing the public safety issues and the funding Absolutely. of police departments. Yes, criminal justice reform still needs to be a part of this, certainly as you get into the onto the, the side of prisons. Um, but the, the criminal justice piece and safety in the streets needs to be a part of it. And then pushing for market-based reforms when it comes to some of these um, issues uh, related to the cost of living. And in that, and this would be the hardest of all the, the, the policy areas that I could propose, um, we've got to reduce the taxes on gasoline. We, we need to do one thing that lets the common Californian know mm -hmm. that we, we are serious about reducing costs on them. You know, there's a, I don't know if you've seen, there's been a, a, a social media meme where people have taken pictures of gas pumps and somebody's did a, done a cutout of Joe mm -hmm. Biden pointing to the price and it says, I did right. this, you know, mm -hmm. you know, there needs to be a Republican candidate that steps out there and points to it after the prices have been dropped, at least somewhere close to the average price for a gallon mm -hmm. of gasoline. 
uh, in the country. We don't have to be the lowest, but when you drive down the street and you see prices, as I can see around here in Malibu and West LA, that are over $6 a gallon, mm -hmm. you know, I can get by with that, but there are people who can't. And the people who can't are the ones that we've actually pushed further out to live and actually made gas a higher percentage of their uh, expenditures right. or expenses mm -hmm. than we did before. So the taking on of the environmental issues, which I will accede to the fact that most Californians support, if you were to ask them, do you support keeping the environment clean? You will probably see a higher percentage of Californians supporting that proposition than in almost any other state. But you've got to go to that next level to say, well, what if we could do it and still maintain environmental quality, uh, but we, without having to tax gasoline at the rate mm -hmm, which we do, mm -hmm. or some of these other measures? Reforming CEQA um, is another one. Um, I think I think those are the kind of beginnings of a set of uh, of a platform that Republicans could build to attract uh, disaffected Democrats who I know are out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say probably having that balance between sort of wanting to argue for a lean, effective government that meets yep. meets your needs. When you when you call a cop, he's going to show up. Uh, yep. When you want your um, you know, street cleaned up and not turn into a homeless encampment. There can be things done about that. Um, you know, uh, your your school is, you know, the infrastructure around it is is, is nice. It's not it doesn't look like some third world country, uh, which some of these schools do, by the way. Uh, even yeah. in LA, like it's it's an abomination, especially all the billions and billions that are pumped into these schools. Yeah, I think I think that would sort of win over a lot of people. Is is and I'd say on the other side of that, and you raised this before, Ashton, has been the growing ideological nature of the left. Mm -hmm. You know, you you just touched on very briefly before this uh, thing about social justice and math education. Um, I was just on another interview. Um, a news station interviewed me about that. You know, um, if there's a silver lining to COVID, it's that a lot more parents got a sense of what's being taught in their kids' classes. That's right. Yeah. And beyond anger at the lockdown, which I think is pervasive across all parents, but especially those who are in two household income earner families, um, learning what's in there is, I think, really, dare I say, uh, woken up mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, some of these parents as to what's going on. Um, I was just watching the movie the other day. I wanted my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter to see it, but Stand and Deliver, uh, which is this, you might remember that movie, late 90s, with Jaime, a story of Jaime Escalante in a South Los Angeles school where he essentially uh, took kids uh, a class and transformed them to become uh, AP math superstars. And I wonder if you could even, if you could even make that movie mm -hmm. today, one that celebrates academic excellence and not bending or changing the curriculum but dealing within a system and re and requiring uh excellence and hard work mm -hmm. uh, toward that end um but i know parents support that kind of focus right. as opposed to changing curriculum um and and changing what's being taught mm -hmm. yeah and it's only it's not only that maybe that wouldn't necessarily be 
uh, that'd be sort of chastised making a movie like that. But it's like also the techniques that you would need to utilize for a teacher to sort of get those kinds of results, right? Like there was there was a film was I think fifteen twenty years ago, Waiting for Superman about that guy uh, Jeff Lucanda, yeah. right? And Great movie. harsh, yeah, harsh disciplinarian. Yeah. But that's what you need. Right, especially when you're yeah. dealing with kids who don't have fathers, you need to have people there to be the father figures, to be watch over them, because you know all kids uh, need that sort of structure, right? You need to build that structure, yeah. and that's another thing that the sort of particularly like the left, the California left is kind of against, right? Like uh, you know uh, work work ethic uh, and punctuality and grammar is white supremacy, right? So there there is that big ideological divide as well. It's not just the policies. You're right. So like you know it's like the um, I don't know if you saw that. That poll, but they they asked his, uh, Latinos, "What do you think of the term Latinx?" Right? So two yes. uh, percent agreed with it, it and forty percent thought it was ridiculous. They they they're actually actively against it. It's like that's the divide. It's a Latinx divide. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. Um, I, I I think <laughs> I think with the Yunkin race, uh-huh. where some some uh, analyst said that. Um, well, first off, you know, Yunkin got over 50% of the Hispanic right. vote. But the analyst said that um, uh, Yunkin got the majority of the Latino vote, but McAuliffe got the majority of the Latin X. Right, right. <laughs> because, because that portion was so small, yeah. uh, that, that wasn't enough to sway the election. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and waiting for Superman, that, and that was, that was actually produced, by the way. And this goes to how the, the shifting political plates waiting for superman was produced by the same people that did um an inconvenient truth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these were people very much of the left but we're seeing on education that this was a system by and large because of restrictions and regulations and the power of public teachers unions that was not acting in the best interest of the kids and back to the policy mm-hmm. platform that republicans have been supportive of but they really need to continue to pushing keep pushing. I think we're going to see at least one, if not two ballot measures around school choice qualify on the California ballot this coming or next November. Um, This needs to be a a major part of any Republican political campaign um, here in California. Yeah, absolutely. That needs to be a centerpiece. The right now, the sort of the California, you know, establishment left position, or maybe I don't even know. Is this? Would you say it's more establishment or, or the progressive? It's kind of hard to tell because some are some are on the school choice bandwagon from the establishment left. Maybe some of the progressives are too. Uh, definitely a, a, a huge swath of, swath of the right is. Yep. But it's like the the status quo is if you're rich and white, you have the good schools because you can afford the two million three million dollar house to live in the good school districts. But if you're right. poor and black or Hispanic, then well, you know, you're going to have to deal with the worst teachers who cannot be fired. Basically, even even if it's like in some circumstances, accused, credibly accused of sexual assault, they don't get rid of these people. And you have to go to these like decrepit schools and there's no escape like that. How is that the pro worker, pro little man, pro, you know, poverty stricken child position? Right. It's not. And again, I think for Republicans, what needs to happen is that needs to be seen as part of government that is necessary, Mm -hmm. but is failing. Right. And so to your question about limited government, limited, but effective in what we ask it to do. And so just reducing the size of government is not really so much a question that's going to be relevant to parents who need their school district. I don't know if you saw the piece 
in Los Angeles Magazine with the interview with the head of the uh, one of the major teachers unions here in Los Angeles. But it is racing um, to hear somebody basically say straight out that a there was no learning loss. Oh right, right. For okay. Kid mm-hmm. in the Unified School District, um, and b uh, the kids learned the difference. I think her term was. Um, Kids learn the difference between uh, protest and coup. Now, that was obviously a, a reference, right, 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 right. sloppy reference to January 6th. Yeah. But this was somebody who really um, was speaking as a real political mm-hmm. actor. She also said you can't get rid of me. Who was, From that? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, her, yeah, their exact quote was, you can recall the governor, but how are you going to recall me? Right. Now, the irony of that phrase, that sentence that she said in this L.A. magazine article, was that one of the reasons people were seeking to recall Newsom as much as it failed in the end was because you couldn't recall her. Mm-hmm. And somebody needed to pay a price for what was going on in the schools. And we forget um, 2018 the election year that brought Newsom to the governorship. There was a battle there in the primary between Newsom and Viragosa, former mayor of Los Angeles. And that was very much the battle between who was going to seek out the endorsement of the public sector teachers unions. Mm -hmm. And Newsom went very hard and strong towards the teachers unions. And Viragosa, to his credit, um, although it cost him politically, uh, was one that stood out and stood for education reform and charter schools and some of the measures that uh, the teachers unions here in the state have been battling uh, so hard again. So the die was cast in the primary back in 2018. And so many of the decisions around the shutdown of schools right. and so forth um, were, were just uh, resonances, results of, of that election back in 18. So when you live in a, a a system where the teachers unions get to uh, be the kingmaker, you know, you're not going to get such such great results. It's it's yeah. I mean, I think that's probably one of the leading issues. Although Ashton, I don't think it's worth. I, I think it's worth to to at least uh, put a little bit of a positive note here, mm-hmm. which is to say, um, Virginia happened, right? You know, and because Virginia happened, it doesn't mean that. California is all of a sudden going to flip. California and Virginia are two very mm-hmm. different states. But what happened in Virginia was that Cal- uh, Virginia voters, voters listed education as their top policy issue. And the Democrats were on the wrong side of that. Now, if you speak to the pollsters and the people associated with the Yunkin campaign, while the media wanted to make it all about CRT, uh, a lot of this was about school shutdowns and around Virginia policy, uh, similar to what's being considered here in California, around uh, the reduction of honors and um, talented and gifted classes Mm -hmm. uh, in public schools. And so those were the issues that were animating voters above and beyond their party representation uh, to put a Republican in there for the first time in over a dozen years. And I think education, is going to continue to be a major issue here in California. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think even a might be even a uh, more appropriate corollary, although I'm not sure how much education played a role in that race was the uh, the New Jersey Senate race, which came yeah. within what like a couple percent of each other in New Jersey, which is it just was, as good as California. Biggest surprise. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. And I grew up in Jersey, yeah. so I'm pretty familiar with that race. Um, in some ways, New Jersey and Virginia together uh, represent California's problems because mm -hmm. the New Jersey uh, race was was uh, built much more on taxes and cost of living. Okay, right. Education was a part of it, but the two big issues, uh, in fact, if you look at some of the campaign ads from the Republican candidate, a lot of them had to do with uh, for sale signs on houses and people leaving the state and high cost of taxes and cost of doing business. And so in many ways, and this would stand to reason because we're just so big and so complex, uh, California really could draw from both the New Jersey mm -hmm. and the Virginia races to have a sense that voters, even in blue states, um, are are looking for alternatives. Absolutely. That's a good point. What would you do about – what would be the winning message on the homeless situation in terms of actual like policies that can be implemented to, to deal with that in an effective manner? Well, we happen to have um, teaching with us this semester – as a visiting professor, uh, Kevin Faulkner, former mm -hmm. mayor of San Diego. Um, and he, he's taught and spoke several classes here, spoke in, in several classes here about the homeless issue. And if you want to learn more about or see a contrast between two different approaches to homeless policy, look at what San Diego has done versus either LA or San Francisco. It was only San Diego that actually saw a reduction in their homeless um, population, albeit single digits, mm -hmm. but a, an actual reduction in the last couple of years where L.A. and San Francisco have obviously seen burgeoning populations. And it was really around a couple steps that Mayor Faulkner said really need to be extrapolated. And he also was considering uh, not only his own possible run for governor, but a possible ballot measure on these issues. Number one. Um, public safety has to be number one. So nobody's sleeping on the streets. That's, that's the bar that is set. Now, you've got to build around um, housing and multi-sector relationships with the pro uh, nonprofit sector and certainly religious institutions to help find the beds and spaces available. But you stand on one primary principle is that we are not going to have encampments. So much of what you see in L.A. and San Francisco are essentially public safety policies in which people, decision makers, whether they be attorney, uh, district attorneys or city councils, have said, we're going to allow people to sleep on the streets. Right. And that was the first step that, um, that Faulkner took. Then what he said he did was when he found housing places where people could be placed, the way the toughest thing to do that, and we've certainly seen it in Los Angeles, is it becomes a massive NIMBY issue because nobody mm -hmm. wants those kinds of facilities in their neighborhoods. And what Faulkner was able to do was to go into those neighborhoods and say, we are going to do a full court press on public safety and sanitation in this area. And I'm going to guarantee you that even after we move the homeless in, this area is going to be cleaner and safer than it was six months ago. And he managed to prove himself time after time after time. And once he was able to do it the first couple times, um, he was able to go to other neighborhoods and say, look, we did it here. We did it here. We did it here. Um, this approach works. It starts with, a um, again, a foundation that we're not going to have homeless on the streets. And we're right. not going to allow encampments. But then you have to build the services around to make that happen.
Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was actually living in San Diego. I think probably I met him a couple of times. I think it was probably like the first year or two that he was there. I left and I was right next to a, I was in downtown San Diego. So that was kind of like the epicenter of, of where that hmm. problem was really exacerbating. But I left before, you know, some of these changes were made by the way, real quick, the, LA was going to do something similar and they were going to like a build encampment was like in Venice or something. Right. Like they're going yeah. to build a structure in the most expensive real estate, basically in like the world uh, rather yeah. than just, wouldn't that be a part of it as well as like, why don't you just buy like cheap land? Like, in you know, yeah. In a place that's, that's lands 10 times cheaper and then try to really force your way through there. Yeah, but but it doesn't, doesn't seem like there's a will there do it. It doesn't huh? need to be an entitlement to live in a place. If you're homeless mm -hmm. in the same way that if you happen to be of a certain income, if you're making 75 grand a year, it doesn't mean you can go into Beverly Hills and say, I demand mm -hmm. that I live here. <laughs> right. you know? And again, if we're thinking especially about taxpayer dollars and the desire to respond to very real issues. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so powerful about Mayor Falconer's approach is he really made this a hard issue, right? He said it is not compassionate to allow Absolutely. people to sleep on the street. And once you convince people of that, you begin to build up the public opinion mm -hmm that even though there are a lot of activists that are supporting the maintenance of that kind of status quo, uh, you develop a number of allies, uh, people who say, yeah, that's not right. That's not who we are as San Diegans um, in, the, in that instance. And it really did turn the tide. Absolutely. So that, and that the homeless thing is actually one of the issues where you can appeal to people in a nonpartisan way because everyone, yeah. every, especially, you know, women, single women and women who, who are often, you know, walk to work or walk back, they're the most affected by this and the, uh, have the most to lose because, you know, these, some of these pe people are mentally insane and they can chase yeah. after you and they feel the most unsafe, right? They're most vulnerable in a lot of respects. Yep. Yeah. That's absolutely an important issue. What is, um, there's one, one or two books you recommended that really opened your eyes, either in like philosophy or economics or public policy, that you recommend to people. What what would they be? Great question. Well, um, one of our core texts here at the Graduate Policy School is "Democracy in America" by Alexis de Tocqueville. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only 200 years old, but I think in many ways uh, speaks to. Uh, what makes America and Americans, and that can mean people who got here 15 minutes ago or people who got here 300 years ago, um, unique. And um, it was very helpful. I read it as an adult um, in helping me to understand that. Another book I think is important, has been helpful to me, is frankly a very boring book, um, but it, it in many ways I think gets into some of these issues around public policy. Um, that we've been discussing. And it's um, a book by an, uh, Bent Fleberg, uh, F-L-Y-J-V-E-R-G, a Danish uh, public policy analyst called Mega Projects and Risk. And what Fleberg goes through there in analyzing a number of massive infrastructure projects from the big dig in Boston to uh, the channel in Europe is to say that in almost every instance, these massive infrastructure projects overpromised on how many people were going to use mm -hmm. them and dramatically underpromised on their cost. And he goes case by case to look at uh, that for those of us who tend to be more limited government folks, and when somebody promises like high speed right. rail, from our said the Bakersfield be the great panacea, <laughs> we have examples out there yeah. of these massive failures. And so when we see this huge infrastructure bill, uh, that's coming out of uh, Washington, D.C., we need to be at least a little bit, you know, 
cautious about what's being promised. And, and again, it's not the most exciting book in the world, but, but really does um, make that case. Yeah. And the infrastructure bills, one third of, of the price of the new, or probably one fifth really when you factor in the costs of, of the new bill that they're trying to pass with the, uh, the build back better. Yeah. It's uh, that's something. What's one thing that you're the thing that gives you most hope and the thing that gives you most pause about either the future of California or the United States? Well, the thing that gives me most hope in California is what we've talked about this changing of mm -hmm. uh, party composition. Uh, I think that the growing ideological nature of the left here in California and the opportunities it provides for an alternative that we'll seek out. Uh, that response. Um, what makes me um, cautious about California is how long that change is going to take. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen in a number of pieces of legislation here in the state, um, the continuing massive growth of uh, the state budget, um, some of the ideological things that are happening in our schools, uh, those are things mm -hmm. that, that really concern me. When I think about the country, um, the thing that gives me most pause is uh, China. So I, I think that um, not knowing exactly where we stand, not fully understanding the threat or the nature of the threat um, by a large percentage of Americans um, is concerning to me. And so I think that's something that we're going to have to work through over the next few years. And what makes me optimistic about America is that I still think, based on freedom and our founding principles, that we are organized in the right way uh, with the right principles um, above and beyond what the China example brings. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, we were talking about this earlier today with what, what what's going on in sort of Australia. Yeah, which is you know with these quarantine camps and you know if if you have close contact with somebody and you're, you're you can be thrown in there, um, yeah. despite the fact you t test negative for days and days and days and you can't even leave. It's a horror story. And we were talking about how you know uh, the United States there are definitely elements that could lead to disaster consequences like that. But there are also so many checks. There are structures in place from the Constitution, you know, not to mention the Second Amendment, that you know it's always going yeah. to sort of be a pushback to these these sorts of at least some of the most horrible externalities. Pete Peterson, thank you so much for being with me. Where could uh, people find you? Learn more about your work. Yeah, I'm here at the Policy School. Website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. And uh, anyone's looking, considering grad school, we certainly welcome uh, you giving that thought. We certainly take a unique approach to the graduate policy degree here, but that's where you'll find us. Pete Pearson, appreciate having you on. It's great to be with you, Ashton. For our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Sox, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.